based upon um, the greatness of Jesus over the uh, spokesmen of the Old Covenant and over the mediators of the Old Covenant, the angels. That tells us something about the critical nature of Jesus and what he brings. And so what the writer does is to sort of make the practical exhortation application. You have that a lot. You know, Paul will do that three chapters of teaching and three chapters of application, essentially, in Ephesians. Here the author does that some at the end also, but he does it in each of the sections. You know, he'll teach some things about the superiority of Jesus, and then he'll draw out some practical application. And so that's what we're doing here. So chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Alright, so what's he telling us we need to do here? Pay attention. Why? Because he's just explained how this new covenant is so much better than the old one that I need to follow. Yes, that's the idea. We know that the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Even that word. The angels who don't have a name like the sun, they don't have a mission like the sun, they don't have a function like the sun, they are really ministering servants of God. But even the message mediated through them. What happened if you disobeyed it? You received a just penalty. Yes, and when you think about what that means, that sounds kind of, uh, you know, distant, just penalty. But what kind of just penalties were there? Stoning. Yeah, <laughs> and... Cutting off hands. And... Wasn't Job's wife turned to a pillar of salt? Lot's wife, yeah. <laughs> that was before the covenant, but yeah. Property for property. Yes. What about... Um, Oh, uh, the guys who offered strange fire, or the uh, man who touched the ark, or... Uh, Personal creation. Yeah. And what about the uh, king who wanted to offer incense? He got leprosy. Yeah, to the day of his death, and so forth. And so you start actually going back and thinking about the, the penalties. Whoa! <laughs> there were some rather severe sorts of penalties for, as he says, every transgression and disobedience. Well, if there was that, then how much more would you expect God to enforce this message that was spoken through the Lord? Not through an angel, but through the Lord. This is something that, that wow, you couldn't even ignore the word spoken by angels without severe punishment. That's the core of what he's saying right there. And it's typical, I think, of Hebrews. There are many warnings 
almost based on fear, I think he'd say. Almost based on the punishment. You, you see that several times. I mean, he, he doesn't hesitate to say, you know, think about what will happen if you do this. We, we, we talk about, somebody coming back, this is probably for that uh, We talk about, you know, the, uh, some blue, little blue car. But, but we talk about the, uh, um, you know, motivations for serving God and how, you know, uh, and I think this is true, the highest motive is love. We, we come to serve God out of love. And we also talk about, you know, the positive motivation of wanting to be with the Lord in heaven and things like that. And, and, and that's certainly true. But, but, you know, for someone who's in danger of drifting away or who's starting to, to feel like, you know, the... Uh, there's somebody who's coming in here. We're in Hebrews 2, just the very beginning. But for, for people like uh, the writers writing to here, who were really um, starting to, to maybe be tempted to turn back to Judaism, they were, they were in danger of falling away. I mean, he uses, you know, pulls out all the stops. I mean, he uses, you know, the, the serious and dreadful consequences as a motivation. And, and that's not wrong. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes, you know, the fear of punishment is given a bad name, but, but the Bible uses that. It's not. I mean, that is a reason to do what's right. And that is something that ought to wake anybody up who's thinking, well, you know, I think I just want to go back into the world or back into whatever. Hey, wake up! <laughs> you know, think about what the consequences of that will be. Now, in verse 1, he, he speaks of, you know, paying closer attention to what we've heard so we don't drift away. I think that's a, a great uh, way of looking at this. Because there are a lot of times when our fall away from God is not abrupt. And therefore, it's not noticed. You know, they, I'm sure you've heard this, but, but uh, you know how to boil a frog? What do you do? And then gradually turn up the heat. Because what happens if you throw them in a pot of boiling water? It jumps right back out. But if you gradually turn up the heat, it'll, it'll call it cooking. You know, we don't notice things that happen more gradually. Um, and, and so that's what he's saying here. You know, be careful. Pay attention that you don't drift away. Don't be careless. Now, think about what the, the, the non-Christian neighbors would think about this guy as he drifts away. think there's a lot to be said in this book about the pressure of society. I think that's a lot of what they were dealing with. We're going to see that eventually. There's a lot to Hebrews, and you can't deal with it all at one time. But, but I think eventually we're going to see more and more how that's part of what was going on here. But what would non-Christian neighbors and friends think about these Christians as they started to drift away? Are they going to, what are they going to look at it as? Returning back to normal. Yes! These guys are finally starting to get back on course. 
you know, they're starting to return to normal, starting to get back to where they ought to be. I think a lot of them were being pressured to turn back into Judaism, which was the tradition, which was the culture. And so this would be coming back to your senses after you, you know, got involved for a little while with the cult, but finally they're, you know, coming out of brainwashing and they're getting back to, to you know, honoring their family again and, and, you know, doing things normally again. You know, so you always have to think, you know, if, if you just said, well, should you drift away from the Lord? Well, everybody would say no. But think about how that looked. There, this is what the author's saying it is, not the way other people would have looked at that. As you start making compromises with the culture, people start thinking you're more cool. But really, you're drifting away, gradually, from the Lord, who you don't want to disobey. I comments and questions on uh, 1, 2, and the first part of 3. So, even though the, the book is directed mainly at Jewish Christians who were in danger of turning back, it applies to other forms of drifting away. I think very much so. I think certainly you will see in this book a tremendous amount of attention given the idea of Jesus' covenant being superior to the old covenant because that's what they were being tempted to turn back to. But, really anything we're tempted to turn back to, there's very much the same kinds of arguments to be made, whether it's turning back to the world, turning back to a false religion, or whatever. A lot of the way you'd approach that is exactly the same way Hebrews does. I think that's the practicality of it for us. It's really the letter for people who are allowing their background and their culture to, to, to gradually, you know, um, draw them back to where they come from. I think um, the use of the word neglect um, is interesting in verse 3 instead of uh, renounce or refuse or, you know, neglect is somewhat benign. Yes. And I think that's also what the drifting away is about, is not necessarily just turning your back on something as it is ignoring it. Yes. And it seems much easier to do. I mean, you know, if we just really just forcefully oppose the Lord, that, you know, we know that's wrong. But gradually drifting, neglecting, it, it, it doesn't it seems so much more innocent, it doesn't seem so extreme. And and that's the the devil's fine with that. You know, he just gets us a step at a time. And using the the metaphor of drifting away and with boats and things, I mean you get the idea that you're fighting against a current. Because if you're on a completely still lake that right. has no current. Then you wouldn't drift. You wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, or your drifting would be so small it would be. But if you're in the ocean or on a river where there is a current, which is kind of what it's like being in the world, there's a current saying, go this way and you've got a exactly. doggy paddle or something. We've got place. to pay that much closer attention and not neglect because it's going to take co constant positive work in the direction of the Lord 
or just the very current will take us away. We don't have to do something to, to actually positively try to get away. We'll just drift away if we don't keep pursuing Christ. Now he talks about this message. It was first spoken by the Lord, through the Lord, uh, not by angels, but then, how did it get to this writer's readers? <laughs> it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Yes. So, the Lord spoke it, then there were those who heard it. Those who heard the Lord speak it, they confirmed it to us. And... What did God do to prove their message? Exactly. Which are things that give um, sort of God's stamp of authenticity to the message. They couldn't work those signs if God wasn't approving their message. And uh, so these gifts were not something that men developed and that they used for their purposes, they were things God gave for his purposes. Do you know the difference between a sign, a wonder, and a miracle? They're all talking about the same thing, but what's the difference in meaning of those three terms? Would it be their purposes? Sort of. What's a sign? What does that tell you? Gives you information. Yes. So a sign, being more of like um, a red throat, is a sign of, you know, tonsillitis. You know, it's it's something that points to something else. It's something that has a, a, a meaning. It it, it it tells you something. It, it it shows you something deeper. The sign really refers more to the to the purpose here. Uh, to to point to. Uh, some deeper truth. Ultimately, to point to the fact it's from God, but also, the miracles a lot of times had specific spiritual lessons they taught. You know, Jesus heals a blind man to prove that he's the light of the world. You see something deeper spiritually about Jesus from what he does physically. Now, I wonder, what does that refer to? Yes, it refers to the effect on the people who saw it. It brings awe, it brings amazement. So the sign is more the purpose, the wonder is more the effect. And the word miracle, do you know what the word miracle actually uh, means? If you don't know, you probably don't know. The word in the original is, is the word plural of power, of powers. So the word miracle really refers to the, 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 the might or the means of accomplishing it. The miracle, the word, refers to the power that actually does it. So they're all, it's like talking about pastor or elder or, or bishop. You know, those refer to the same man, but they're really saying something different about those men. 
Signs, wonders, miracles are all referring to the same events, but they're each looking at a different aspect of that event, the purpose or the effect or the means of accomplishing. And those were God's means of, of confirming his message by, by the signs, wonders, and miracles. He proved that this was his message that we better pay careful attention to. That's the exhortation. You know, Jesus is greater than the angels, therefore, you'd better pay more, even more careful attention to his word and not disobey it than the word spoken by angels where God punished the disobedience so severely. Comments or questions on chapter 2, verses 1 to 4? You said they all refer to the same event, but different... Different angles, different aspects, I don't know, different something. First one, he's talking about paying attention to what we have heard. Yes. As opposed to what they had heard, or and the way it had been. Yes. He's trying to get the through Jesus the word there, maybe a little bit more than the signs, various ways and many portions and ways that it was presented before. That's correct. Yes, exactly. Other thoughts. Do I want to ask who the us is in verse 3? Uh, well, the writer and his readers. I take it that the writer himself was not an eyewitness. That would be my guess. Now, he might have just been including himself editorially, mm -hmm. but I would take it that he probably was not an eyewitness. So is this where I ask who wrote Hebrews? Well, you can ask. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't think anybody else does either. <laughs> Some people think they do, so... <laughs> I know, but they just don't have much to go on. Yeah. I mean, what, you know... I just don't think... I mean, it's obviously somebody who knew Timothy. You know, maybe that's something to go on. I mean, people think Barnabas, Titus, you know, whatever. Um, but who knows who all knew Timothy? We don't have any writings from these guys. I mean, the only person that we have, the only people we have writings from that people think it might have been that I've ever heard are Paul or Luke. I don't think it's even one of those. You know, I think certainly the writing style is very different from Paul or Luke, in my judgment. I, I think it's unlikely it's one of those. I think it's unlikely that Paul would have written a letter to the Jews. I think he was the more the apostle to the Gentiles. But but when we rule out somebody that we have the writing of, then I think it's pure speculation. I mean, it's like, people will argue. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things. Apollos has argued, you know, whatever. Do we have a clue what Apollos would have written like? Maybe it is. It sounds good to me, but, I mean, it's just as good to talk about somebody else. So I'm willing to to, to rather mildly defend who it's not. Uh, but who it is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was written by a girl. You <laughs> 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 know, it was Maybe. written by somebody who knew something about the old law. Yes. 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 I would think probably more likely written by a Jew. You know, somebody like a Barnabas 
is a decent choice. <laughs> but, you know, so would Silas, or, you know, and maybe a lot of other people we don't know hardly anything about. You know, what about Epaphroditus, or, you know, I mean, there's, the, the, the list is endless, and it could be somebody we don't even know the name of. So one of the priests who became obedient to the faith. Sure, exactly. Does it matter? I don't think so. If, if, I mean, <laughs> here's, the, here's the problem. I mean, here's the difficulty, probably, is just trying to, um, you know, uh, all the other books, we essentially um, have more confidence in their canonicity because of their author, which is one of the problems that Hebrews had because we didn't know the author. And we know this was written by an apostle or prophet. Um, I think the fact that it was included in the canon is adequate proof from my perspective the content of it also, I think, is certainly totally different than any non-inspired writing that's ever come down to us. You know, so, but that would probably be the bigger question. If you could prove the author, then it becomes easier to defend the canonicity. And may have been one reason why it was often assigned to Paul. If it's Paul's, then clearly it's authoritative pretty logical so even if it like I don't know it just makes sense what he's saying yes I agree yes you're right I, I you know I mean there's something about scripture that's self-authenticating not that that would be my first line of approach with a non-believer or somebody who didn't agree but I do think uh, for me I come to you know, to believe in the authenticity of the scripture also, some for subjective reasons. I mean, the content itself does prove it. I mean, the more you get into it, the more you see it. The more profound it is, and the more difficult it is to imagine some non-inspired writer could have written this. I mean, I've read stuff that non-inspired writers write, especially non-inspired writers from that era. I mean, I've read some of the competition of things that people wanted to include in the canon. First and second Maccabees. Well, sure, any of that stuff. I mean, that, I read that last week, I guess. Yeah, well, the they're the best stuff in the Apocrypha, other than maybe like uh, Ecclesiasticus or something, but, uh, yeah. you know, Bill and the Dragon and Judith and Tobit and some of that kind of stuff is really bizarre. Um, but, but read the New Testament, um, you know, things like the Epistle of Barnabas and the Epistle of the Laodiceans and, and the Shepherd of Hermas and some of those things. I mean, some of them weren't terrible, but wow. I mean, the one of the Laodiceans is just strictly a compilation of quotes from all over the rest of the epistles, you know, and kind of not well put together. And, you know, I mean, wow. I mean, the stuff... You just, you read it and you're like, man, <laughs> no wonder they didn't include that. You know, I mean, really. Uh, and you read, I mean, some of the stuff is even more bizarre. The Gospels of who they're, you know, this one and that one and whatever that have Jesus working stunts as a boy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, wow. It really makes you appreciate what inspiration did for these guys. You know, you realize, wow. They, because you see what people wrote who weren't inspired. And it's just nothing like it. So. Cool. But read all that for yourself. I think, uh, you know, the people who, who are real worried about, well, you know, why don't we have the books that the Catholic Bible has, you know, the Apocrypha and all that. Uh, you know, maybe we should have that. What, what about this? You've never read it. If you read it, A, 
you realize it doesn't really make any difference because there's nothing about the Catholic Church that, you know, the Apocrypha tells about. I mean, it's not even that kind of stuff. And B, some of that stuff, wow, it really, I mean, the only, I mean, wow, how could you ever think that was Bible? I mean, it's just not at all. So, first second Maccabees, better. First second Maccabees are terrible. You could, I could see that easier than some of the other stuff. God's a better writer than that, though. You're right, but you read the best stuff. (laughs) No, that's scary. (laughs) Yeah, oh, you read the rest of it. Yeah, other than, I think it's Ecclesiasticus, or whatever they call that, that is sort of Proverbs-type stuff. Some of those Proverbs weren't bad. All right, anything else you want to say on whatever we've gotten into? The next section will uh, test ourselves uh, a little bit in terms even of understanding what it's saying, but also in trying to figure out why it's here. Because it doesn't exactly fit the flow. I mean, we had the, the teaching, Jesus greater than the prophets, Jesus greater than the angels, and the exhortation flowing from that. We're going to come to Jesus greater than Moses and the exhortation flowing from that. And then Jesus greater than Aaron, the high priest, and the exhortations flowing from that. But in here we get this section stuck in here that doesn't exactly seem to fit that. And I would say it doesn't fit that. I think we do have, this would almost make a good bracketed section. You know, it's wonderful. I'm not trying by that to in any way to relegate it to an inferior thing, but it is kind of an aside for a moment before we come back to the main argument. But it's a very important aside. Because what we've just said in chapter 1, is how much greater Jesus is than the angels. Now, is there an obvious problem with that? The angels were considered good. And Jesus? Better. Considered <laughs> he was a man. Better. He was a man. Absolutely. I mean, you're saying Jesus is greater than the angels? I mean, no human being is greater than the angels. And, okay, so we say, well, yeah, but Jesus was, you know, pre-existent. He was Christ. He was God. He was. Well, then tell me why he became a man if he's all that great. I think that's what this is dealing with. It's dealing with this potential objection to the whole idea of Jesus being greater than the angels based upon his humanity. And that is the thing that makes it difficult for for people to see Jesus as God. He didn't look like it. He doesn't look like it. And even if we say, oh, but he was, he became, whatever, well, why did he become a man? So I think that's what we're dealing with here, personally. And that's how I kind of explained this in the text. It's kind of an aside to deal with the reasons why Jesus became a man. In that, it's really cool, and I think you'll like it. So, but we'll have to read, we'll have to study the whole thing before you'll really come to like it, I think. Five to eight. We did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have anointed him, appointed him over the world. I can't even read it over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. For now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. All right. We're sort of beginning uh, an argument here. 
Um, and he says in verse 5, he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Um, you know, the angels surely uh, were not that exalted. Again, seeing Jesus as the one who has authority over the world to come. Um, which is kind of going back to his main point, his main thought. But now he, he comes to this passage from Psalm 8 and, and cites it. And he's going to draw some points from it. But in Psalm 8, it basically asks the question, God, why have you put man in such a high position? Why have you done so much for man? And it goes back essentially to the created, the creation, and the position God put man in. Where did God put man? At the top of the food chain. Very much so. How top of the food chain was he? All things were to be subject to that. That's one thing. He was the ruler over all things on the earth. Every last thing subject to man. Remember when he called the animals to name them? I take it. The, the animals would just do whatever he said. He was in charge. What else do you see about man's position here? Is he lower than angels? But just a little. Just a little lower than the angels. Not much. And what else do you see about it? It's kind of glorious. Absolutely. Think about the glorious image of God. Almost the region of God on the earth. You know, just wow. Look at the glory and honor that God created for man. Now, it is worth asking, why, why man? Why did God do all this for man? Why did God create man in this position? That's Psalm 8. Now, his commentary on Psalm 8, at the end of verse 8 is, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. When he, in other words, he's just saying, look at what this means. He said, you put all things in subjection under his feet. All things mean all things. All things mean there's nothing that isn't. You know, the, it's the same way we reason from a passage. You know, we'll cite a passage and then we'll say, okay, so if he says all things, then it means blah. You know, and then he says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Do, is man the ruler over everything? Does everything submit to man? What does it? The weather. Yeah. <laughs> Wild animals. Wild animals. You're going to go out here and, uh, you know, tame a black bear that's hungry? You know, or a whole lot of other things? How about a, you're going to be able to play with a poisonous snake? Some people do, but wouldn't advise it. I mean... <laughs> you're subject to the law of gravity. Yes. Uh, but I'm thinking more, I think more the, the you know, realm of, of like animal and plant and so forth. Think about bacteria and viruses and things like that. You know, are we in control of them? Are they subject to us? Well, certainly a lot of times they're not. 
so here you see man in this high, glorious, all things subject to him position. Then he says, but look, that's not where man is. Now, do you know why man isn't there? when man sinned. Yeah, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your bread and thorns and thistles will come up. And all that kind of stuff. The fall messed up the position God made for man. Before that everything was in subjection to him. Before that he was crowned with glory and honor. Just a little lower than the angels. But because of the fall, man does not realize the purpose that God created him for. Man's created destiny has not been achieved because of man's sin. So here you have God, you know, purposing this for man. And man fell, and so man does not achieve the, the purpose for which God created him. That's step one in his argument. Not everybody understands this this way, but I'll argue it's the way they should understand it. <laughs> Alright, comments or questions? He says we don't yet see. Yes. So what does that tell you? We will? Yes! Very good, you're observant. That's right. We will. But how we will remains to be seen as we continue to proceed through the text. But yes, that already gives you a hint mm -hmm. that this creation objective will be re-attained by man. How do we know that it was the fall that messed that stuff up? Like, was it different before the fall? It was. Yeah, because we know how God cursed the ground, mm -hmm. um, and you know gave woman pain and childbirth, and, you know made enmity between the snake and the man, and all that. Mm -hmm. So I think Genesis three makes it clear that they were kicked out of the garden. You know <laughs> they started dying, all that. So this whole section that he's referring to is referring to man in general? Yes. This, the psalm in 6 through 8, the quotation, mm -hmm. yes. Now the next sections, no. But but through verse 8, yes. This is man. It talks about man being made a little lower than angels. And then he'll talk about Jesus being made a little lower than angels. That's correct, but that's the next section. Right here it's man. Okay, so these two aren't, shouldn't be confused no. with one another. I don't think so. When we come to the end of the section, I think you will see how that fits together. Um, some people make a big confusion of this, in my, in my judgment, by trying to introduce Jesus in the quotation. You working? Yeah, well, yeah, I go. I got okay. the new Dremel. Ah, cool. Well, thanks for coming. Good to see you. See you later. All right. And I would assume at the point where it says son of man. Yes, son of man is just poetic parallelism. Those two lines are saying the same thing. Because, are you the son of man? Of course, we all are. <laughs>
you know, man, son of man, same thing, human being. Because sometimes people think son of man, oh, that's Jesus, he was a son of man. Well, he was a son of man also, but it's not what he's talking about here. And what about the little while lower than angels? Yes, that's a very debated phrase. In fact, um, in my margin, it says, or him a little lower than the angels. That's really a translational question, and that's debatable. I don't have a strong view as to whether he's saying a little while or a little bit. Um, I think maybe a little bit, but but that's debatable. That, that really is. Depending on translation, you'll find it either way, because it's a phrase that can mean either one. Good questions. This is really cool, though. If you see what he's saying, you see that the psalm is marveling on what God, the position God created man for, but then remarks that, you know, we're not there. And we know from what we know in the Bible why we're not there. I mean, you know, would you have to worry about mosquitoes in the garden? You know, would you have to worry about, you know, uh, I don't know, thistles and briar bushes and Poison ivy. Poison ivy, yeah, that's a good illustration. No poison <laughs> ivy. At least poison ivy didn't bother you in the garden. <coughs> you have to worry about death and sickness and painful childbirth and all that kind of stuff. Not, not in the garden. You know, and all that, it was just perfect. It was just, it was bliss. That's the way God made man. It's not the way we see man, because man messed things up bad. Right, anything else you want to say through verse 8? 9 to 13. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crown of glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will pro proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, and behold, I am the children whom God has given me. End of 8, we, now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while, or a little bit, lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That is the key right here. Jesus became a man. He put himself in the position of man so that he could recover for man what man lost by the fall. That's what he's saying. We, but we do see him who became a man through death, we gain the glory and honor 
not for himself, but for every man. This is it. You've heard me use this illustration probably, but the uh, the ants, the ant kingdom, is having a terrible crisis because of their own maldoing. They have created a situation in which all the ants are going to die, in which they have, they no longer have the noble position that they were created for, and, and they're doomed. And it's terrible. And, and no ant could do anything about it. And with tremendous compassion, tremendous concern, Nathan becomes an ant. To save the ants from this crisis that they've created. And he goes through all this antdom and even dies as an ant to to be restored back to the position the ants had had before. Would you do that for an ant? For the the ant kingdom? (laughs) Yeah. Jesus did that for us. He became a man because he saw we were in a terrible crisis. We were not fulfilling our destiny. He became a man. He died as a man so that he might bring salvation. So that he might bring us back to the position we lost. That's why Jesus became human. Does that make sense? That's a cool illustration. Mm I think that one might be original, but not many of mine are. just lost some coolness. <laughs> it was cool, you know that. I've used that for years, so I like that. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Now you see, he's trying to bring these many sons to the glory and honor that he'd created for them. But to do that, he had to perfect the, the author, I prefer pioneer, of their salvation through sufferings. Uh, the word here is really like the word pathfinder, pioneer, that blazes the trail. Through sufferings, Jesus blazed the trail for us to be able to come back into the glory that God created us for. But the thing of it is, Jesus had to suffer, he had to die, he had to become a man. Because as a man, he had to regain the position we had lost. So, did the fact that Jesus became a man show that he's lower than the, that you know he's not superior to the angels? No, he became lower than the angels for us. Not because of some defect in him or some limitation in him. He saw we were in a crisis, and he decided to become one with us so he could recover us from that crisis. There is so much of really what Jesus does and what the gospel does is try to bring us back to the garden. You know, to that fellowship with God, to that perfect condition of life. You look at the end of Revelation, whatever you want to say about it, it does present the goal in Garden of Eden terms. That's really where we're going. And, he says in 11 to 13, essentially, 
that Jesus became a true man. You know, he calls us brethren. And he cites a passage. We'll proclaim your name to my brethren. And so Jesus becomes one with us. He becomes a brother with us. He identified himself with us. And and in the words of Isaiah, he puts his trust in God. and, And he identifies himself with the children that God gave him. So he's saying that Jesus became truly one with us. He really became our brother. He became that so that he could rescue us. Comments and questions through 13. He's using these, like, quotes from other places, right? And, and in verse 13, I don't understand how I will put my trust in him. How that has to do with him being a brother. Good question. And huh, it's a little more complicated than what you even asked when you stop and look at it. This is a quote back from Isaiah 8. And I wasn't necessarily going to go into this, but you ask a tangential question, I might as well go into it. Um, This is Isaiah and his followers um, who are showing the nation the kind of attitude they ought to have toward God. And uh, in verse 17, And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will even I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. This idea of waiting or trusting in the Lord is, you know, this idea of the dependence on God, of, of, of putting our hope, of, of, of leaving it in the Lord's hand. And, and if you're doing that, then you're like other servants of God. We, we don't take matters in our own hands. We trust in God. We, we wait for Him. We put our hope in Him. The thing that's hard here about this quotation is, why is he citing it about Jesus? This is about Isaiah in Isaiah 8. And, and I think that's the harder question. I think the answer is, just as Jesus um, was the ideal king, therefore he fulfills the life of David. <coughs> and he's the ideal priest, therefore he fulfills the life of Melchizedek. So he's the ideal prophet, thus he fulfills the lives of prophets like Isaiah. And so, but this, if Jesus is an Isaiah, then he's showing his union with the, with the other flesh and blood, putting his trust in God and and being, you know, one with the children that he's given him. He's saying he, you know, he uh, knew how he trust God, understood how he... He put his trust God. in God and therefore he was one with us who we put our trust in God. Okay. It's really difficult. I think it's very difficult when... He, when 
Yeah, it's applied to Jesus, the quotations from Isaiah. But they're quotations that would show his being a real man, and they're appropriate to Jesus because he's the ideal Isaiah. Would you say that um, you know he put his trust in God? You know, Jesus didn't decide to come down here. It was God's plan to, and his obedience. And as a man, he constantly was deferring to the Lord. He constantly was saying, you know, I don't speak on my own. I speak what he says. I don't do my own will. I do what he says. He's putting all of his trust in the Lord. He had the power to do things on his own, but he deferred it. He became an authentic man, trusting in God as we trust in God. God, he could have used his power to turn the stones to bread, but he didn't. You know, he shelved his power to live as a real man. Yeah, it does, but it takes a little bit more work to see it. I like the the way that the Psalm eight quote then parallels what's going in the next section. Yes, he's a little lower than angels. Well, we see him who was made a little lower than angels, who is crowned with glory and honor, and crowned with glory and honor. And then appointed him over all of the works, or appointed him over the works of your hands. This would be Jesus, who, for whom all are made, through whom are all made. So, look, it's a nice little. Yes, yes, absolutely. He is using the terms of the passage to show how Jesus becomes a man and then regains that Psalm 8 condition. But that, this whole thing is sort of deep. I mean, that's a really profound concept. I think that's exactly what the Bible's saying. But it is, you know, you have to think about that a little bit. But it makes you appreciate what Jesus has done. He's become a man to save us. All right, other comments or questions through 13? Fourteen to eighteen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, I think he's going a step beyond what we've looked at so far. Kind of going beyond Psalm 8, just to talk about more about what Jesus did for us by being a man. What did he do for us in 14 and 15? Rendered powerless him who had the power of death. Who was that? The devil. The devil. <laughs> How did he render him powerless? 
by dying. That's a really great irony that death, which was really the ultimate in Satan's power, became the very instrument of his defeat. God's got a real sense of humor. <laughs> you know, death being the chief, you know, weapon of Satan. So he kills Jesus, and that becomes the very way Jesus releases us from his power through his death. Don't you see Satan? Fuming? He, he does things and they backfire. You know, Satan never willfully sabotages himself. But it turns out that way. It was stupid of him to kill Jesus. He should have never done that. That was just putting the nail in his own coffin. He didn't realize that. But Jesus dying releases those who have been subject to death. He comes out with the keys. What a blessing that he died. You think, well, how, well, why did he do all this? You know, if he's so great, much greater than the angels, well, now we know. He subjected himself to human condition, even to human death, so he could release us from the prison the devil had us in. So you think about, how do we look at death now? Because it's just the doorway into the great blessing of being with the Lord. Without Jesus, think about it. If Jesus, Jesus never came and died, none of this ever happened, how would you look at death? Do anything to avoid it. Why? Because after that, that'd be it. Um, well, I mean, yes. Not only. I guess I'm saying life on this earth would be the only enjoyable thing we could ever have. Exactly. You would know the moment of your death you were plunged into absolutely unspeakable eternal agony with no recourse. So your only hope would be just to prolong your life here on earth as long as you possibly could. Wow. You know, we don't ever think about what it would be like if Jesus hadn't done all you know, we take it sort of for granted. We've known all our lives, Jesus has done this. And so we sort of count on that. But you start to think, what would our life be like if he hadn't? It'd be terrible. Sure. You know, we don't really want to think about that. But so he's saying, that's why he did that. He, he's done this to bless us. Christ is the David that killed the Goliath. You know, he's released us from that. And, and you know, another way of looking at that is verse 17. A high priest needs to share in the nature of the people he's interceding for. In order to become a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's kind of a transition thing. You know, we're, we're sort of, I guess not transition as much as we're anticipating the rest of the story that's going to present Jesus so much as the high priest. 
because how could Jesus really be a qualified mediator for us if he never experienced our human condition? As he says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. By sharing in those experiences, Jesus understands and he's able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. I may have used, I may have said this already, but if I haven't, then I need to. Um, do you think that Jesus really does understand temptation? He never gave in. What does that tell you? What it tells me, he understands temptation better than I do. Because I've given in. And if I haven't used this, or some of you don't know this illustration, think about this. You know, if, if, if Nathan stands up and I start pushing on him a little bit and he falls down, how much force does he know from me? Just a little bit. What if he hold his, holds his ground while I'm pushing on him harder? And then he falls down. Then he understands a little bit more force. But what if he resists the whole way through? Then he feels the full force of my push. The one who has felt the full force of the temptation is the one who never gave in. We've given in rather quickly. We don't even know the full strength of temptation. Jesus, by holding out the whole time, knew every last ounce of, of force of temptation the devil had to offer. So really, Jesus understands temptation better than we do. He has experienced stronger temptation than we ever have. Because we've given in at some point. Does that make sense? He really does understand. He is really a merciful and faithful high priest. I think it's really helpful. Because I think we are intended to see Jesus as truly understanding. But it's sometimes a barrier mentally for us that he didn't give in to the temptation as if maybe he doesn't really know what it's like. And the truth is, he knows what it's like better than we do. Uh, comments and questions on all that. What does verse 16 mean? Well, that's a really good question. I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> For assuredly, in in my in in this translation, uh, in the text of the New American Standard, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Um, but literally, as the margin says, it's, he does not take hold of angels, but he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. Now, well, here's the question. It is literally takes hold. Is he taking hold to help us? Is that what it means? That's what they assumed in the text. He doesn't, you know, take hold to, to help angels. He takes hold to help the descendants of Abraham. But the take hold might mean take on the nature of. So it may be saying, yes, it may be saying, for he did not uh, take hold of angelic nature, but he took hold of the nature of the descendant of Abraham. You know, and, and be saying that he, he didn't become an angel, he became a man.
I think you could argue either one. And I'm not sure which one is right. Probably more would argue for the second. That's saying he didn't, um, doesn't, uh, he didn't become an angel, he became a man. But, but there's plenty to argue for the first one, too. There's a lot to the, Basically helping. Take hold to help. Take hold to help as opposed to take hold in the sense of assuming the okay. nature. Both of them really kind of fit the context. I think you can argue for either one of them from that. And I think the, the language apparently supports either idea. Taking hold Because that mean, isn't, wasn't it by taking on the nature that he helped? Yes, certainly. I mean... So there's a very close <laughs> relationship. Yeah. So it's not so critical, maybe, because both are true. And just by the descendant of Abraham, it's just like the, the man son of faith. Man, I think the man, man of faith. Okay. That's what I would say. Because it's not a. It wouldn't be the capital S seed of Abraham. Right. Because that just right. I agree. Make sense. I agree. The offspring of Abraham. See, I've got a marginal note on that too. Literally seed. Okay. But seed can be used for just the descendants in general. Other comments and questions? Should we stop here or should we go on and do another section? How's your how's people's time? All I have to do is mow my yard, so. Okay. Well, let's do then chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope from and to the end. Okay. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. In a way, that's almost the uh, theme statement of the book. Consider Jesus. And it's a great exhortation. We don't do that enough. Um, but... But he's considering Jesus in a particular situation. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle. I didn't think Jesus was one of the apostles. Is he an apostle of God? Yes. Apostle means what? No, not exactly. Well, apostles were witnesses, but it's not what apostle means. One who's sent. Jesus was sent by God. Now, to say he was apostle and high priest is really the two halves of the relationship. He was sent by God to mediate to man. 
And he's a high priest in that he comes from man to mediate to God. The apostle comes from God down to man. The high priest goes from man up to God. He's going to say some more about all that in time. But really in this section, in 2 through 6, he compares Jesus with what? Or who? Moses. Moses. Now, he's like Moses in what way? Faithful. He was faithful. Yeah. Jesus like Moses, both were faithful. He's not like Moses in what ways? It's more Yes. But in terms specifically of what he says here. He's more glorious because. I guess, yes, he's got more glory, but but because of what specifics? Well, he was a son, not a servant. Yes, that's one thing. And that's a pretty obvious thing uh, in terms of the difference. I mean, you know, Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. Obviously, his son has a higher position than a servant. Both faithful, but one in a much higher role. There's another, a little bit more complicated contrast between Jesus and Moses here. What's that? The builder of the house and the house? Yes. Jesus was the builder of the house. Moses was a part of the house. The builder is greater than the house he builds. Uh, it's like the system and the author. Moses was part of the system. Jesus was the one who made the system. And Moses was part of the house? Yes. Moses was part of the house. Jesus built, built the house. Jesus is to Moses as a builder is to a house. <laughs> as God is to the universe. You've really got those three parallels. Now we are going back yes. before we had the interview. That's correct. Now we have Jesus is greater than the prophets as the, uh, you know, um, spokesman of the law. Jesus is greater than the angels as the mediators of the law. Jesus is greater than Moses as the giver of the law. Chapter 3 is where Jesus is greater than Moses. Yes. As the giver of the law. Yes. One, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 is greater than the prophets. Or 1, 1, one and 2, really. 1, 3, whatever. Okay. God spoke to the prophets, now he speaks in his son. So 1, 1 to 3, Jesus is greater than the prophets. That's correct. And then what was the other one? Then Jesus is greater than the angels, 1, 4 okay. to 14. Then practical application and digression. And now, 3, 1 to 6, Jesus is greater than Moses, giver of the law. The prophet, the mediator, and the giver, what's the prophet? Spokesman. Yeah, okay. 
spokesman. Spokesman mediator. Yeah. You can do whatever you want to with that. Those aren't like sacred uh, terms, but that's the idea. Now, you know how he is. This leads him into another practical exhortation. He says in verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. If we stick it out till the end, he's worried that they won't. Everything in this letter depends on sticking it out. Perseverance. Firm until the end. An irrevocable, irrevocable, irrevocable commitment. I like that word. I just can't say it. A commitment that can't be revoked. Because that's we're his house. If we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. And that's going to lead him to the next section. The exhortation. Just like you had in chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. kind of a parallel thing he does. Not necessarily with the d- distribution of number of verses. It's a parallel thing. It gives the teaching Jesus is greater than and then he leads into the practical application here's what you ought to do with that. Only this time it's going to be a lot of application exhortation. Comments and questions? Does that make sense so far? Willie, you have to say Hebrews is quite logical. Very very much that way. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) you got these letters. Like, when I get a letter, I don't generally study it. Like, do they really study the letters they got? I expect they should have. I mean, you don't generally get a letter from God. You know, but if you'd like, we can print off a book of the Bible and send it to but, you. But back in the day, when you didn't have email, text, and other things, and phones and cell phones, if you lived a long way from your special someone, and you got a letter from them, you did analyze it carefully. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What did they mean by this? I, well, I lived far away from my special someone for a while. Well, I was referring to the old enough part. Ah. Yeah. You would read it, and you would reread it, and you would wonder, what do they mean by that? And oh, yes. Uh, you try to analyze every word. Stroke to determine if you could figure out whether or not they paused there. To see if I hadn't done that. I typed all mine, so he couldn't do that. I said I would have about it. I would type mine. But it was pretty cool. You you wouldn't you would you would study over it. And how much more one from God. You've been spoiled by email. Well, yeah, we, we don't need to get old fashioned yeah. love letters at some point. Yeah. They're really fun. Yeah, well, but not any more than Gary's gonna give me the, his notes to Psalm fifty one and I'm gonna look over them more than just once. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna study it because I know the message is gonna be important. Maybe something I want to know. So yeah, I think so. I think they would really pour it over. It's what God wanted them to do. It's, it's, I mean, as, as Paul said in First Thessalonians 2, you didn't receive it as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, 
you receive something as the word of God. That's different. So it is and these, Go ahead. These were people who, you know, their ancestors received God's word on tablets of stone from his hand. You know, they they understood that the word of God was something important. It's really cool that you can keep getting more and more out of this. It's not like you're just, you know, digging up stuff that's not there. There's, boy, there's a lot in there. Yes. You can go to my backyard to dig up stuff. It's an it's an inexhaustible treasure. You know, you just you mine it and you get more and more and more and more and more and more. And it never stops. Ever? It's amazing. It's so big too. Yeah, it is. It's so exciting. That's why I think it's authentic. It, it to me that is what tells the authenticity of God's word because it is living. Yeah, that comes to have more impact than anything else. Yeah, what what mere human word could do that? When you see a, a very elderly person still reading their Bible, still getting something out of it. It tells you that it's something special because you don't read Shakespeare and get the same thing out of it. Mm-hmm. Or get anything out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> good quotes. Yeah. All right, very good. Other thoughts? All right, well, we'll stop here, and I think I'll be back next week. Oh, wow. No way. I'm still smacking the phone.